Welcome to Prison Pipeline, produced at the studios of KBOO Portland. I'm Karen James. My guest is Bridget Budbill with the Oregon Criminal Justice Commission. In 2021, the Oregon legislature passed House Bill 3229, which directed the CJC to develop recommendations for minimum standards for health care services for adults in custody in our county jails. Bridget assembled a council who developed recommendations, which she presented to the Oregon legislature in September 2022. Bridget, can you talk about the work of the Oregon Criminal Justice Commission and your position with the commission? The Oregon Criminal Justice Commission is the state statistical analysis center, and it really has a couple of key purposes. Um, the first of which is the state's criminal justice system research body. Um, we also administer grant programs and policy projects when the legislature asks us to. Um, The mission of the Criminal Justice Commission, in in sum, is to improve the effectiveness, efficiency, and legitimacy of Oregon's criminal justice system. So those sort of three points, the the grants, the uh, research projects, and the policy projects are all there to support that mission in a way where we are sort of neutral arbiters who investigate things when we're asked to and and convene groups to study things about our, our state system and local systems. Essentially, I'm a senior policy analyst here at the agency. Um, I have a a lawyer by background, but really a lot of what I do is this sort of convening of people around policy ideas and and really figuring out what's the information that we don't know, what what do we know, and then what are the questions that need to be answered, what can be answered, and what is sort of still up in the air based on information that may be unavailable or just people can't decide yet. In 2021, the Criminal Justice Commission received a directive from the Oregon legislature with the passage of House Bill 3229. So talk about that directive from the Oregon legislature. I'll back up a little bit. It was It's kind of a continuation of something that began in 2019. In 2019, there was a House Bill 3289 that asked the Criminal Justice Commission to convene a group to talk about essentially how jails collect data, among other things. It was, you know, it was one of those bills that had a couple of tasks attached. But one of the recommendations that came out of that House Bill 3289 in, in you know, 2019 was that jails should look to have minimum health care standards. And so in the following long session, because there are short sessions and long sessions, in 2021, the legislature followed up on that report with House Bill 3229, which is how we got the project we're here to talk about today started. And that bill was about establishing minimum healthcare standards in what are called Oregon's local correctional facilities. And that's a sort of a statutory word for jails. We have 39 jails in Oregon, 31 of which are run by counties, eight of which are run by cities. And so that this project applies to all of those 39 jails together. And it really had two main points one was to get a group together, talk about what minimum healthcare standards jails should have, and then also recommend, for the first time as far as I know in Oregon history, an independent commission at the state level that would review and administer on an ongoing basis minimum healthcare standards for Oregon's jails. So that's what began uh, last year, and uh, that's what the report that was submitted in September was was really about. So, And so you started by assembling an advisory council. So can you talk about who ended up on that council? Sure. So the Criminal Justice Commission chair, or the chair of our commission, 
Um, so we maybe just for folks who are unfamiliar with how the CJC works, we have staff who do the actual agency work, and then we have a board of commissioners who make decisions about certain things uh, based on their, you know, what the statute says they do. But when they're given things like, you know, this big policy project, uh, our commission was given the authority to appoint the membership. So um, we had 16 spots to fill. We had to find someone from the Sheriff's Association, the State Sheriff's Association, uh, a county council, which is just a, a person who is a lawyer on behalf of a county. And the reason that's relevant is because those are the folks who, if a jail were to get sued, would act on behalf of the jail in a, in a representative context. Um, we needed someone from the criminal defense field, like a criminal defense attorney, um, a civil rights person from a, an organization who protects civil rights, someone from an organization advocating for the rights of folks who are disabled, someone from the Oregon Health Authority, uh, rep from the Oregon Department of Justice, someone from the governor's office. Um, and then we had also with healthcare folks as well, someone who you know has direct experience administering healthcare to patients, someone who is a pharmacist, um, someone who has some sort of counseling or psychiatry background, like delivering mental health care to folks, someone who is essentially the, the jail commander or chief administrator at a jail. So we call them jail commanders typically. Um, someone from a federally qualified health center, someone who provides actual health care to folks who are at a local jail. So in our case, we had a jail nurse. And then we had two members from the legislature, one from the Senate and one from the House, which is pretty common to have you know, representatives from, from both bodies. And so that was sort of our our scope of who we were required and allowed to appoint. If I may, there were two sort of what I would call gaps in that representation that we sought to fill in the best way we could. Number one is we didn't have any authority to appoint someone or, or folks with lived experience receiving or seeking uh, health care in an Oregon jail, which I think is really important to have that voice at the table because I think it's fair to say, you know, you can have all of the folks who develop policies and administer policies that you want, but if you haven't had someone at the table who's actually been the recipient of that care, it missed that sort of what was what worked well and what didn't work well from the perspective of the patient. So what we tried to do was um, invite a number of folks who had that experience to participate in, in a non-appointed but sort of robust participatory role. And, you know, it was sort of the best we could do without that, like I said, the authority to appoint someone officially. So they, unfortunately, they, they couldn't vote, but they did have sort of free reign to comment and participate, or at least I hope they felt like they did. And then the second role that wasn't appointed or wasn't allowed to be appointed was someone from a municipal jail. We had two representatives from jails. One was from a large jail, one was from a small jail, and they were both county jails. And those jails just tend to operate a little bit differently than municipal jails. So in the future, um, we did invite municipal jail commanders to participate as well. And we did have a few who, who attended meetings and provided some comments. So that was sort of the, the panoply of folks who were at the table. And then we also just made the meetings. They were very, they were public. Um, anyone who wanted to attend and comment and, and weigh in could. So what was the name of the advisory council? Sure, we, we ended up with the Jail Healthcare Standards Advisory Council. And the way the bill was written was interesting. It, it put the council in an advisory role to the commission. So the commission ultimately had the responsibility of producing and turning in this report. 
And our deadline for a report was September 15th of, of this year, 2022. So House Bill 3229 also directed the specific health care topics in this project. But before we discuss those health care topics, let's talk about what jail health care standards currently exist in Oregon. We have had statutory jail standards in operation in Oregon since I think 1974. It was sometime in the mid-70s when we got our first set of statutory standards. They are in chapter uh, 169 in case anyone wants to look them up. And right now, and these numbers sometimes can change if things get amended, but um, you'll find our statutory minimum jail standards at ORS 169-076. But one thing about them, and this is true of a lot of statutory standards, because statutes are hard to change, you know, they set a floor or they set a directive to a, a jail. You know, you have to have a policy on keeping, for example, medication secure, but it doesn't go into the details of how to do that or, or sort of what minimum healthcare should look like, those kinds of things. So they are, I think it's fair to say that the, they're pretty high level. I think there's probably 15 standards total that have been enumerated. And they've really only been changed maybe once or twice, pretty minimally in the last, you know, but almost 50 years. So um, in light of that, uh, our Oregon sheriffs took it upon themselves in the 90s to create a more detailed set of standards to use in the jails because, you know, sheriffs administer county jails and then, you know, uh, local city police departments would administer a municipal jail, but the State Sheriff's Association created the Oregon jail standards. There's a lot more detail in those, and they're also available online. If you search for Oregon jail standards, those should pop up. Again, I'd be happy to help anyone find them if they're having trouble. Here's the thing, though. The statutes apply to everyone. You have to follow a statute. The Oregon jail standards that are set up by the Sheriff's Association are technically voluntary. Uh, you, You can, and it's a best practice, and I think Virtually all of our our jails in our state follow them, but strictly speaking, they're not required to because they are, you know, it's a policy from an organization that they adopt because they think it's the right thing to do, not because they're they're required to. So that's sort of the background where you have the two sets of, of standards that most jails follow. And then some jails will go further and adopt further standards for themselves. We have some that have gone, you know, they have their own local policies that they've enacted. We have some that have pursued sort of a national best practice course of standards. Um, So it really is kind of up to the jail, apart from those minimum statutory standards, sort of what else they add on top to follow. Apart from the minimum statutory standards, the Oregon Department of Corrections is tasked in statute with creating a set of minimum jail standards that they would then uh, sort of administer to Oregon jails. But the Department of Corrections, which is our state prison system, was also given the authority to delegate management of those standards to another entity. And that's where the Oregon jail standards that are are administered by the State Sheriff's Association come in, because they, at this point, stand in place for that Department of Corrections manual. They've been delegated that authority, in, in essence, to have their standards be what would have been the Department of Corrections manual Um, that I think existed at one time, but really hasn't been used in maybe a couple of decades in sort of a robust way. But just for some clarity, that's that's how the layers of standards really work. You've got state statutory standards in ORS 169-076. The DOC then has this manual that they're 
required to administer. They have delegated that to the State Sheriff's Association, who now operate the Oregon jail standards. So why don't you list those uh, specific health care topics that were directives from House Bill 3229, and then we'll go into detail about each one. There were a set of standards that the legislature asked this group to look at, and the first was qualifications and licensure requirements for healthcare professionals who would provide health care in an Oregon jail setting. The second was access by adults in custody to a healthcare professional who is authorized to prescribe medications. Third was staffing levels and round-the-clock on-call healthcare services. The fourth was protocols to ensure timely transfer and continuity of care for adults in custody to and from a hospital if there was a determination by a healthcare professional at the the jail or some other means of contacting a healthcare professional that treatment at a hospital was the right thing to do given the circumstances. Next was screening healthcare needs of adults in custody, scheduling and administering healthcare appointments, including follow-ups with the right professionals, uh, next was establishing appropriate confidential spaces for receiving health care to adults in custody. And then last but not least was any pilot project or sort of implementation plan that the council thought was worthy of consideration for the state. So the other thing that the, the legislature asked this group to do was to develop recommendations for establishing a permanent independent commission who would have ongoing duties and responsibilities So adopting in the first place and then updating and optimizing standards, policies, and procedures for provision of healthcare to folks in custody in local jails. So that's sort of the big umbrella job that they would have to do. You know, there were lots of details that the legislature asked this council to provide in addition to just that sort of like the sketch of what that commission would look like, including the name, uh, the number of folks who would be on it, their qualifications, their term limits, um, who would appoint them, how often you would report to the legislature, and other sort of details about how this commission would work. And so some of the things that the council recommended was, you know, this should be an executive branch agency. One of the things that executive branch agencies can do that no other branch of government can do is develop administrative rules. One of the things that's nice about administrative rules is I wouldn't call them easy to amend, but they are much simpler to amend than a statute. You have more opportunities to do it. Um, The public process is very well laid out. So it was clear to the council that it should be an executive branch agency. So basically the standards could be kept up with the times. Um, You wouldn't have this, oh, we only amend them once every 50 years kind of situation. In addition to the scope that the legislature asked the council to look at, which was, you know, adopting and then revising over time this uh, set of minimum jail standards that would, you know, probably ideally be either in administrative rule or governed by administrative rule, in addition to the minimum standards and statute. They also saw that this commission could be a real opportunity for the first time for the state to have a central hub where people who have questions or concerns or good ideas for jail health care could reach out to this commission, give them their ideas or their comments or ask questions. And the commission would have this sort of minimum standards requirements uh, authority, but it would also have inspection authority or primary inspection authority for seeing if the healthcare standards are being followed. It could also have a technical assistance role to help jails who 
want to improve or any jail that wasn't meeting those standards meet the standards because um, as we've seen in you know other states have these kind of commissions and it seems as though that the ones that operate the best and get the best outcomes do have sort of a dual purpose of oversight but also technical assistance if all you're there to do is find things that are wrong but you have no role in helping assist remedy them um, you don't get the outcomes that you're looking for in addition to the scope that the legislature asked them to look at, they added that as a recommendation as well. So let's get into the specific healthcare topics. The legislature was looking at, or was asking this council to look at, do you think that the existing standards for how people are licensed and regulated for healthcare um, are sufficient in the state? And essentially, the, the council believed that they were and didn't have any specific recommendations for adding you know, some sort of new requirement that wouldn't exist if you were working in a community healthcare setting. It's exactly, or it should be, the exact same standard of care. It's supposed to be as good as you would get at your local Kaiser Permanente or whatever your healthcare situation is. So we took a look at what are the licensure requirements that already exist, and they are you know, heavily regulated by other organizations like the Oregon Health Authority or the Oregon Board of Pharmacy, those sort of things. And it didn't really make sense to add additional layers to what already existed. I think, and this is going to be true of quite a few of the, the requested recommendations that the legislature set out for us, was that we took a look at the, the specific issue, and instead of creating a directly responsive new standard, we kind of zoomed out a little bit and said, okay, what's the bigger problem here? What's the systemic issue that might be causing there to be not enough providers in an Oregon jail? It typically isn't that licensure requirements are too high or too low. And this has been true, at least in jails before the pandemic, and it is certainly true in many community situations after you know, after sort of the height of the pandemic and the lockdown, we're certainly still in it, but it's just a lack of healthcare professionals who are available. So one of the recommendations um, was, how can we incentivize more people to want to work, not only in healthcare, but with people in jail settings? So there is a rec recommendation that we should look at both new, new professionals who are just entering the workforce and people who have been in the workforce already how can we incentivize them to work with people in jail settings whenever possible, be it through, you know, loan forgiveness or loan assistance, hiring bonuses, housing subsidies, the kind of assistance that would really allow someone to try something new? Because one thing that is tends to be true, and I'm not saying this is always true, but at least in a lot of our more rural parts of the state, your county pays for your jail health care, and a county might not be able to keep up with wages in the private sector. So you might just make a lot more money if you were a, a private sector nurse than you would in a jail. That's, again, not always true, but that's sort of what that recommendation is looking at. The other thing that I think is responsive to this dearth of healthcare providers, particularly in jail settings, is supporting the expansion of telehealth opportunities. I hate to say if there was a silver lining of the pandemic, because I, I don't think that's the way, right way to phrase it, but we did look for more telehealth opportunities because of the pandemic, including in jails. Um, the only caveat there is telehealth is not always medically appropriate. Sometimes, particularly if you have folks who have uh, a behavioral health or specifically a mental health issue, the idea of telehealth doesn't always sit well. So those were two recommendations that were sort of aimed at being responsive to the 
the healthcare worker shortage in jails. Uh, another idea was once you've hopefully gotten a little bit more of your healthcare workforce beefed up, was to create uh, statewide or regional healthcare provider teams to support jails who, for whatever reason, just either don't have the local resources or don't have the people to provide healthcare uh, in the time frame that their adults in custody would need it. You know, uh, timeliness of getting appointments scheduled, timeliness of having someone seen and continuity of care, making sure the healthcare that they either received before they were incarcerated, while they're incarcerated, and after they leave is not completely different patchwork, not matching up. But also, you know, in terms of like medication assistance, another recommendation was to utilize either a statewide or regional, kind of depending on the jail, you know, the jail's preference or what would work best for how the jail already operates, uh, some sort of medication access program through which Oregon's local jails could purchase medications through a streamlined source at a bulk rate at a government price. And we've seen other states take advantage of this. The state of Minnesota is sort of the, the leader in how this works. Um, and our Department of Corrections could be for some medications. It, it looks like, you know, it depends on which drug you're trying to purchase that, you know, the rules get a little bit different. But there is an opportunity for our Department of Corrections to be this conduit so that if local jails wanted to, they could purchase, you know, drugs that were needed routinely, let's say for something like diabetes or maybe a heart medication in bulk at lower rates than if they were just going to go out on their own and contract with a, a pharmacy. One caveat that I think is important to think about is this might not work best for all jails. Um, it, it just really depends on whether this would actually be a cost savings. So one of the things we're looking at in implementation is to see this would probably be a good discussion for the, you know, the, the future commission to see when and if at all this would be required or if it should be entirely optional, whether you join this sort of medication bulk purchasing opportunity. And there was also a recommendation that created statewide or regional provider teams to support jails when adults in custody need medical care. So we have a couple of parts of the state where there just isn't the, the local health care resources that you will see in the Valley or in the greater Portland area. Um, the nearest hospital may be the only round-the-clock care that a person in a very rural jail has access to. And that jail might be, you know, a long way away from that hospital. Um, so what we're seeing is, you know, it would be better to have the opportunity for someone to be seen for routine care. Of course, if you have an emergency, the jail needs to take the person to the emergency room. And that's, that's what jails do now. Um, but for that routine care that would hopefully, at least in some cases, prevent the need for such an urgent appointment, um, the sort of routine care that we all hope, the primary care we hope people can get um, would be these teams that could create some sort of routine visits where, you know, every Wednesday, let's say, this is just an example, you would go visit county so-and-so in the a far corner of the state and everyone could get, um, you know, a blood pressure check or they're, you know, screened for whatever screening they hadn't had in a while, making sure that their medications are up to date and, and filled and those kinds of things dental care as well. There are parts of our state in 2022 that don't have nearly enough resources for even if you were in the community, let alone being in a jail setting where uh, sometimes it can be harder to, to access health care.
Another recommendation by the Jail Healthcare Standards Advisory Council was expanding the Oregon Health Plan, or Medicaid, to adults in custody in Oregon. Talk about that. But I'll back up and give some background in case folks are not familiar. In 1965, as an amendment to the Social Security Act, people lose their Medicaid assistance, their state health care, when they become incarcerated. Uh, so if you are on the Oregon Health Plan, which is our state's iteration of that federal program, as soon as you're incarcerated, uh, you essentially get put on a list and it gets sent to the Oregon Health Authority, which is the state agency that administers the Oregon Health Plan. And they will essentially pause your enrollment. It's called suspension of benefits. And then when you, the person who was incarcerated, leave jail, you sort of have two opportunities to get that health care reinstated. One is to have someone called an OHP, an Oregon Health Plan assister, who can help you re-enroll. And the other is to do it yourself. And unfortunately, most parts of the state, uh, OHP assisters uh, are not that common yet. I mean, there's, there's a lot of interest in expanding access to them, but it, you usually find them in bigger counties or more populated areas. So if you're in a real rural place um, or a frontier place, it's not likely that you're going to have that support. And even in a populated place, your OHP assister might not have had the opportunity to meet with you because jail releases are so they can be really hard to predict when you're going to be released. It's not like prison when you know, you know, you know at least 60 days, sometimes even more than that, your release date. So the idea here was um, to right now, because the enrollment reinstatement burden is on the person releasing and based on an Oregon rule, an administrative rule, they have 10 days after their release to reinstate their benefits or they're actually canceled and they would have to completely reapply for them. We also know that the 10 days after you get out of jail is a really rough time for most people, particularly if you're already in a vulnerable place, if you have a health care need that's not being met, if you have a mental health care uh, or a housing instability issue. So the idea for the council is, well, if the state can turn it off, why can't the state kind of reverse that by um, get a list of folks who are released, check and see, oh, yep, we suspended so-and-so on this date. Let's reinstate them in our computer system. And now they would be covered again, at least um, until they needed to re-enroll for whatever reason. Um, the problem is you can't, there's nothing we can do at the state level that would prevent people from losing their benefits while they're incarcerated. Unfortunately, it's, it's a federal issue. And every year there's a bill uh, from someone that asks to reverse that, that federal uh, Medicaid inmate exclusion policy, which is, again, really old at this point. Um, but no, at the, at the moment, the states are stuck with having folks lose their coverage while they're in jails. But another thing that Oregon was looking to do or is currently looking to do is there are opportunities for states to negotiate with the federal government on waiving certain parts of Medicaid rules. And it's called the Medicaid waiver process or an 1115 waiver. And this, this go-round, uh, Oregon Health Authority proposed uh, allowing for limited, and it is quite limited, OHP coverage to people in local jails before they left custody. The idea would be, we'll cover some of your screenings, we'll get some of your transition planning set up. Um, so that was proposed for the first time in Oregon's, I think, Medicaid history. Unfortunately, they were not approved in the sort of first round of waiver proposal approvals. 
but it's not totally off the table yet. And it sounds like, at least from OHA, we won't know whether that is approved this year. But I think what that tells you is getting people automatically, or at least sort of automatically reinstated once they re are released from jails is that important. In an ideal world, you would have reentry planning, which was another one of our recommendations, was increasing transition planning between institutions. So if you're releasing from jail, let's say you got your OHP set up before you, you know, the day you left, maybe you'd have your first appointment already scheduled. Maybe you'd have sort of an understanding or a plan for how to get your medication filled when the medication you left jail with was had run out, those kinds of things. Bridget, where can people find this report by the Jail Health Care Standards Advisory Council? The report is available on the Criminal Justice Commission's website. If you go to, uh, there's a tab at the top of our webpage that should say publications. So you presented the recommendations to the Oregon legislature in September 2022. Bridget, where do you go from here? It was submitted. I do have some feedback from state reps and, and senators already. And we have requested to actually do a formal presentation at the next opportunity, which could be what's called December legislative days, which is sort of like a preview to the next session that starts in January. It might happen then. It might also just be a, a regular hearing during the January session. And the other thing is we have what's called a legislative concept placeholder, which is essentially um, a bill that you can use for ideas before you know exactly what the idea is going to be. But that's sort of the next step is getting the report turned into some sort of bill that people in the legislature will respond to next session that starts in January.